0: Welcome back to The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, a podcast production brought to you by Someone New Theatre Company. We hope that you enjoy this episode, part two of The Adventure of the Copper Beaches.
1: By eleven o'clock the next day, we were well upon our way to the old English capital. Holmes had been buried in the morning papers all the way down, But after we had passed the Hampshire border, he threw them down and began to admire the scenery. It was an ideal spring day, a light blue sky flecked with little fleecy white clouds drifting across from west to east. The sun was shining very brightly, and yet there was an exhilarating nip in the air, which set an edge to a man's energy. All over the countryside, away to the rolling hills around Aldershot, the little red and grey roofs of the farmsteadings peeped out from amid the light green of the new foliage. Are they not fresh and beautiful? (laughs) I cried with all the enthusiasm of a man fresh from the fogs of Baker Street. But Holmes shook his head gravely.
2: Do you know, Watson, that it is one of the curses of a mind with a turn like mine that I must look at everything with a reference to my own special subject? You look at these scattered houses, and you are impressed by their beauty. I look at them, and the only thought which comes to me is a feeling of their isolation and of the impunity with which a crime may be committed there.
1: Good heavens! Who would associate crime with these dear old homesteads?
2: They always fill me with a certain horror. It is my belief, Watson, founded upon my experience, that the lowest and vilest alleys in London do not present a more dreadful record of sin than does the smiling and beautiful countryside.
1: You horrify me!
2: But the reason is very obvious. The pressure of public opinion can do in the town what the law cannot accomplish. There is no lane so vile that the scream of a tortured child or the thud of a drunkard's blow does not beget sympathy and indignation among the neighbours. And then the whole machinery of justice is ever so close that a word of complaint can set it going. And there is but a step between the crime and the dock. Look at these lonely houses, each in its own fields, filled for the most part with poor ignorant folk who know little of the law. Think of the deeds of hellish cruelty, the hidden wickedness which may go on year in, year out in such places, and none the wiser. Had this lady who appeals to us for help gone to live in Winchester, I should never have had a fear for her. It is the five miles of country which makes the danger. Still, it is clear that she is not personally threatened.
1: No. If she can come to Winchester to meet us, she can get away. Quite so. She has her freedom. What can be the matter, then? Can you suggest no explanation?
2: I have devised seven separate
1: explanations,
2: each of which could cover the facts as far as we know them. But which of these is correct can only be determined by the fresh information which we shall no doubt find waiting for us. Well, there is the Tower of the Cathedral, and we shall soon learn all that Miss Hunter has to tell.
1: (coughs) The Black Swan is an inn of repute in the High Street, at no distance from the station. And there we found the young lady waiting for us. She had engaged a sitting room, and our lunch awaited us upon the table.
3: I am so delighted that you have come. It is so very kind of you both. But, indeed, I do not know what I should do. Your advice will be altogether invaluable to me. Pray, tell us what has happened to you. I will do so, and I must be quick, for I have promised Mr Rewcastle to be back before three. I got his leave to come into town this morning, though he little knew for what purpose.
1: Let us have everything in its due order. Holmes thrust his long, thin legs out towards the fire and composed himself to listen.
3: In the first place, I may say that I have met, on the whole... With no actual ill-treatment from Mr. and Mrs. Rucastle, It is only fair to them to say that. But I cannot understand them, and I am not easy in my mind about them. What can you not understand? Their reasons for their conduct. But you shall have it all just as it occurred. When I came down, Mr. Rewcastle met me here, and drove me in his dog-cart to the Copper Beaches. It is as he said, beautifully situated, but it is not beautiful in itself, for it is a large square block of a house, whitewashed but all stained and streaked with damp and bad weather. There are grounds round it, woods on three sides, and on the fourth a field which slopes down to the Southampton High Road, which curves past about a hundred yards from the front door. This ground in front belongs to the house, but the woods all round are part of Lord Southerton's preserves. A clump of copper beeches immediately in front of the hall door has given its name to the place. I was driven over by my employer, who was as amiable as ever, and was introduced by him that evening to his wife and the child. There was no truth, Mr Holmes, in the conjecture which seemed to us to be probable in your rooms at Baker Street. Mrs Rookcastle is not mad. I found her to be a silent, pale-faced woman, much younger than her husband. Not more than thirty, I should think, while he can hardly be less than forty-five. From their conversation I have gathered that they have been married about seven years, that he is a widower, and that his only child by his first wife was the daughter who has gone to Philadelphia. Mr Rewcastle told me in private that the reason why she had left them was that she had an unreasoning aversion to her stepmother. As the daughter could not have been less than 20, I can quite imagine that her position must have been uncomfortable with her father's young wife. Mrs Rewcastle seems to me to be colourless in mind as well as in feature, She impressed me neither favourably nor the reverse. She was a non-entity. It was easy to see that she was passionately devoted both to her husband and to her little son. Her light grey eyes wandered continually from one to the other, noting every little want and forestalling it if possible. He was kind to her also in his bluff, boisterous fashion. And on the whole, they seemed to be a happy couple, And yet she had some secret sorrow, this woman. She would often be lost in deep thought with the saddest look upon her face. More than once I have surprised her in tears. I have thought sometimes that it was the disposition of her child which weighed upon her mind, for I have never met so utterly spoiled and so ill-natured a little creature." He is small for his age, with a head which is quite disproportionately large. His whole life appears to be spent in an alternation between savage fits of passion and gloomy intervals of sulking. Giving pain to any creature weaker than himself seems to be his one idea of amusement, and he shows quite remarkable talent in planning the capture of mice Small birds and insects. But I would rather not talk about the creature, Mr Holmes. And indeed, he has little to do with my story.
2: I am glad of all details, whether they seem to
3: you to be relevant or not. I shall try not to miss anything of importance. The one unpleasant thing about the house, which struck me at once, was the appearance and conduct of the servants. There are only two, a man and his wife. Toller for that is his name, is a rough, uncouth man, with grizzled hair and whiskers, and a perpetual smell of drink. Twice since I have been with them, he has been quite drunk. And yet Mr Rucastle seems to take no notice of it. His wife is a very tall and strong woman, with a sour face, as silent as Mrs Rucastle, and much less amiable." They are a most unpleasant couple, but fortunately I spend most of my time in the nursery and my own room, which are next to each other in one corner of the building. For two days after my arrival at the Copper Beaches, my life was very quiet. On the third, Mrs Rewcastle came down just after breakfast and whispered something to her husband.
4: Oh, yes, Uh, we are very much obliged to you, Miss Hunter, for falling in with our whims so far as to cut your hair. I assure you that it has not detracted in the tiniest iota from your appearance. Uh, We shall now see how the electric blue dress will become you. You will find it laid out upon the bed in your room, and if you would be so good as to put it on, we should both be extremely obliged.
3: The dress which I found waiting for me was of a peculiar shade of blue, It was of excellent material, a sort of beige, but it bore unmistakable signs of having been worn before. It could not have been a better fit if I had been measured for it. Both Mr. and Mrs. Rewcastle expressed a delight at the look of it, which seemed quite exaggerated in its vehemence. They were waiting for me in the drawing-room, which is a very large room, "'stretching along the entire front of the house "'with three long windows reaching down to the floor. "'A chair had been placed close to the central window "'with its back turned towards it. "'In this I was asked to sit, "'and then Mr Rewcastle, walking up and down "'on the other side of the room, "'began to tell me a series of the funniest stories "'that I have ever listened to. "'You cannot imagine how comical he was.' and I laughed until I was quite weary. Mrs. Rewcastle, however, who has evidently no sense of humour, never so much as smiled, but sat with her hands in her lap and a sad, anxious look upon her face. After an hour or so, Mr. Rewcastle suddenly remarked that it was time to commence the duties of the day and that I might change my dress and go to little Edward in the nursery. Two days later, This same performance was gone through under exactly similar circumstances. Again I changed my dress. Again I sat in the window. And again I laughed very heartily at the funny stories of which my employer had an immense repertoire and which he told inimitably. He then handed me a yellow-backed novel, and moving my chair a little sideways, that my own shadow might not fall upon the page, he begged me to read aloud to him. I read for about ten minutes, beginning in the heart of the chapter. And then suddenly, in the middle of a sentence, he ordered me to cease and to change my dress. You can easily imagine, Mr Holmes, how... Curious, I became, as to what the meaning of this extraordinary performance could possibly be. They were always very careful, I observed, to turn my face away from the window, so that I became consumed with the desire to see what was going on behind my back. At first, it seemed to be impossible, but I soon devised a means. My hand-mirror had been broken— So a happy thought seized me, and I concealed a piece of the glass in my handkerchief. On the next occasion, in the midst of my laughter, I put my handkerchief up to my eyes, and was able, with a little management, to see all that was behind me. I confess that I was a little disappointed. There was nothing, at least that was my first impression. At the second glance, however... I perceived that there was a man standing in the Southampton Road, a a small, bearded man in a grey suit, who seemed to be looking in my direction. The road is a very important highway, and there are usually people there. This man, however, was leaning against the railings which bordered our field, and was looking earnestly up. I lowered my handkerchief and glanced at Mrs. Rewcastle to find her eyes fixed upon me with a most searching gaze. She said nothing, but I am convinced that she had divined that I had a mirror in my hand, and I had seen what was behind me. She rose at once. Geoffro, there is an impertinent fellow upon the road there who stares up at Miss Hunter.
4: No friend of yours, Miss Hunter?
3: No. I know no one in these parts. Dear me!
4: How very impertinent. Kindly turn round and motion him to go away.
3: Surely it would be better to take no notice.
4: No, no, no. We should have him loitering here always. Kindly turn round and wave him away. Like that.
3: I did as I was told. And at the same instant, Mrs. Rewcastle drew down the blind. That was a week ago. And from that time... I have not sat again in the window, nor have I worn the blue dress, nor have I seen the man in the road.
2: Pray, continue. Your narrative promises to be a most interesting one.
3: You will find it rather disconnected, I fear. And there may prove to be little relation between the different incidents of which I speak. On the very first day that I was at the Copper Beaches, Mr Rucastle took me to a small outhouse which stands near the kitchen door as we approached it, I heard the sharp rattling of a chain and the sound as of a large animal moving about.
4: Look in here,
3: said Mr. Rucastle, showing me a slit between two planks.
4: Oh, is he not a beauty?
3: I looked through and was conscious of two glowing eyes and of a vague figure huddled up in the darkness.
4: don't be frightened it's only carlo my mastiff i call him mine but really old toller my groom is the only man who can do anything with him we feed him once a day and not too much then so that he is always as keen as mustard toller lets him loose every night and god help the trespasser whom he lays his fangs upon for goodness sake Don't you ever, on any pretext, set your foot over the threshold at night, for it's as much as your life is worth.
3: (laughs) The warning was no idle one, for two nights later I happened to look out of my bedroom window about two o'clock in the morning. It was a beautiful moonlight night, and the lawn in front of the house was silvered over and almost as bright as day. I was standing, wrapped in the peaceful beauty of the scene when I was aware that something was moving under the shadow of the Copper beeches, As it emerged into the moonshine, I saw what it was. It was a giant dog, as large as a calf, tawny-tinted, with hanging jowl, black muscle and huge projecting bones. It walked slowly across the lawn and vanished into the shadow upon the other side. That dreadful Sentinel sent a chill to my heart, which I do not think that any burglar could have done. And now I have a very strange experience to tell you. I had, as you know, cut off my hair in London, and I had placed it in a great coil at the bottom of my trunk. One evening, after the child was in bed, I began to amuse myself by examining the furniture of my room and by rearranging my own little things. There was an old chest of drawers in the room. The two upper ones empty and open, the lower one locked. I had filled the first two with my linen, and as I still had much to pack away, I was naturally annoyed at not having the use of the third drawer. It struck me that it might have been fastened by mere oversight, so I took out my bunch of keys and tried to open it. The very first key fitted to perfection... "'and I drew the drawer open. "'There was only one thing in it. "'But I am sure that you would never guess what it was. "'It was my coil of hair. "'I took it up and examined it. "'It was of the same peculiar tint and the same thickness. "'But then the impossibility of the thing "'obtruded itself upon me. "'How could my hair have been locked in the drawer?' with trembling hands, I undid my trunk, turned out the contents, and drew from the bottom my own hair. I laid the two tresses together, and I assure you that they were identical. Was it not extraordinary? Puzzled as I was, I could make nothing at all of what it meant— I returned the strange hair to the drawer, and I said nothing of the matter to the Rucastle's, as I felt that I had put myself in the wrong by opening a drawer which they had locked. I am naturally observant, as you may have remarked, Mr Holmes, and I soon had a pretty good plan of the whole house in my head. There was one wing, however, which appeared not to be inhabited at all, A door, which faced that, which led into the quarters of the Tollers, opened into this suite, but it was invariably locked. One day, however, as I ascended the stair, I met Mr Rewcastle coming through this door, his keys in his hand, and a look on his face which made him a very different person to the round, jovial man to whom I was accustomed, his cheeks were red. His brow was all crinkled with anger, and the veins stood out of his temples with passion. He locked the door and hurried past me without a word or a look. This aroused my curiosity. So, when I went out for a walk in the grounds with my charge, I strolled round to the side from which I could see the windows of this part of the house. There were four of them in a row, three of which were Simply dirty, while the fourth was shuttered up. They were evidently all deserted. As I strolled up and down, glancing at them occasionally, Mr. Rucastle came out to me, looking as merry and jovial as ever.
4: Ah, you must not think me rude if I passed you without a word, my dear young lady. I was preoccupied with business matters.
3: <laughs> I assured him that I was not offended. By the way, you seem to have quite a suite of spare rooms up there, and one of them has the shutters up. He looked surprised and, as it seemed to me, a little startled by my remark.
4: Photography is one of my hobbies. I have made my dark room up there. But, dear me, what an observant young lady we have come upon. Who would have believed it? Who would have ever believed it?
3: He spoke in a jesting tone, but there was no jest in his eyes as he looked at me. I read suspicion there, an annoyance, but no jest. Well, Mr Holmes, from the moment that I understood that there was something about that suite of rooms which I was not to know, I was all on fire to go over them. It was not mere curiosity— "'though I have my share of that. "'It was more a feeling of duty, "'a feeling that some good might come from my penetrating to this place. "'They talk of woman's instinct. "'Perhaps it was woman's instinct which gave me that feeling. "'At any rate, it was there, "'and I was keenly on the lookout for any chance to pass the forbidden door. "'It was only yesterday that the chance came,' I may tell you that, besides Mr Rewcastle, both Toller and his wife find something to do in these deserted rooms, and I once saw him carrying a large black linen bag with him through the door. Recently, he has been drinking hard, and yesterday evening he was very drunk, and when I came upstairs, there was a key in the door. I have no doubt at all that he had left it there. Mr. and Mrs. Rewcastle were both downstairs and the child was with them, so I had an admirable opportunity. I turned the key gently in the lock, opened the door, and slipped through. There was a little passage in front of me, unpapered and uncarpeted, which turned at a right angle to the farther end. Around this corner there were three doors in a line, the first and third of which were open. They each led to an empty room dusty and cheerless, with two windows in the one and one in the other, so thick with dirt that the evening light glimmered dimly through them. The centre door was closed, and across the outside of it had been fastened one of the broad bars of an iron bed, padlocked at one end to a ring in the wall and fastened at the other with stout cord. The door itself was locked as well, and the key was not there. This barricaded door corresponded clearly with the shuttered window outside, and yet I could see by the glimmer from beneath it that the room was not in darkness. Evidently there was a skylight which let in light from above. As I stood in the passage, gazing at the sinister door and wondering what secret it might veil, I suddenly heard the sound of steps within the room, And I saw a shadow pass backwards and forward, against the little slit of dim light which shone out from under the door. A mad, unreasoning terror rose up in me at the sight, Mr. Holmes. My overstrung nerves failed me suddenly, and I turned and ran. Ran as though some dreadful hand were behind me, clutching at the skirt of my dress. I ran down the passage, through the door, and straight into the arms of Mr. Rucastle, who was waiting outside.
4: So it was you, then. I thought that it must be when I saw the door open. Oh,
3: I am so frightened!
4: My dear young lady, my dear young lady!
3: You cannot think how caressing and soothing his manner was.
4: And what has frightened you, my dear young lady?
3: But his voice was just... A little too coaxing. He overdid it. I was keenly on my guard against him. I was foolish enough to go into the empty wing, but it is so lonely and eerie in this dim light that I was frightened and ran out again. It is so dreadfully still in there.
4: Only that?
3: Why. What did you think?
4: Why do you think that I lock this door?
3: I I am sure that I do not know.
4: It is to keep people out who have no business there. Do you see?
3: He was still smiling in the most amiable manner. I am sure if I had known...
4: Well, then, you know now. "'And if you ever put your foot over that threshold again?'
3: "'Here, in an instant,' the smile hardened into a grin of rage, "'and he glared down at me with the face of a demon.
4: "'I'll throw you to the mastiff!'
3: "'I was so terrified that I do not know what I did. "'I suppose that I must have rushed past him into my room.' I remember nothing, until I found myself lying on my bed, trembling all over. Then I thought of you, Mr. Holmes. I could not live there longer without some advice. I was frightened of the house, of the man, of the woman, of the servants, even of the child. They were all horrible to me. If I could only bring you down, all would be well. Of course, I might have fled from the house, but... "'My curiosity was almost as strong as my fears. "'My mind was soon made up. "'I would send you a wire. "'I put on my hat and cloak, "'went down to the office, "'which is about half a mile from the house, "'and then returned, feeling very much easier. "'A horrible doubt came into my mind "'as I approached the door, "'lest the dog might be loose. "'But I remembered that Toller had drunk himself "'into a state of insensibility that evening.' "'and I knew that he was the only one in the household "'who had any influence with the savage creature "'or who would venture to set him free. "'I slipped in in safety "'and lay awake half the night in my joy "'at the thought of seeing you. "'I had no difficulty in getting leave "'to come into Winchester this morning, "'but I must be back before three o'clock, "'for Mr. and Mrs. Rewcastle are going on a visit "'and will be away all evening, "'so I must look after the child.' Now, I have told you all my adventures, Mr Holmes, and I should be very glad if you could tell me what it all means, and, above all, what I should do.
1: Holmes and I had listened, spellbound, to this extraordinary story. My friend rose now and paced up and down the room, his hands in his pockets, and an expression of the most profound gravity upon his
0: face. Thank you for joining us for part two of The Adventure of the Copper Beaches. This episode featured the voices of Stephen Georgiadis as Sherlock Holmes, Shannon Nichols as Dr. John H. Watson, Olivia French as Violet Hunter... Barry Kay as Jeffro Rucastle and Lucia Kelly as Mrs. Rucastle, And making her voice acting debut is the 11-month-old Yuli, providing some sounds for Carlo the Mastiff. Yuli's not much of a barker, but she sure is quite a bit of a sniffer. Join us next time for part three of The Adventure of the Copper Beaches and the final episode of The Holmes Podcast.